0: Hi, I'm Elena Joe, and this is episode 22 of Big Picture Relationships, Parenting Matters Less Than You Think. Today I'm going to dive into the story of a woman named Judith Harris who was intensely controversial when she released all her research in the late 90s about the fact that peers are more important than parents. And whether you agree with that or not, she has some excellent points to make and research-driven points to make about where parents matter and where our children are wired to be who they're going to be. So I love this message for some of the pressure that it takes off of us and some of the understanding it gives us for our kids. Thanks for joining me and let's jump right in. This is Big Picture Relationships with Elena Joe, a therapist sharing insights, ideas, and real-life pep talks that encourage you to expand your perspective, maybe shift some behaviors, and make the most of real-life relationships so you can live a happy life right now. Hi, you guys. I'm excited to tell you a story today about a woman named Judith Harris and her claims based on intense research. Now, she made headlines in the late 90s all about the idea that peers matter more than parents and I remember as a kid this coming out and my parents talking about it around the dinner table and we were all outraged like how can this be true of course parents matter and it's kind of funny because you know the news took her book and ran with it but I'm digging into her research and her story this month and it fascinates me now this is a new idea and I'm not here to convince anybody of anything. I myself don't completely align with her and I'm not convinced of everything but it's good for us to hear new and different things especially about parenting which we all you know are kind of trying to figure out as we go along. So if you're a parent if you might one day be a parent if you're a grandparent or if you know anybody who's a parent this will still be interesting to you and worth having conversations about around your dinner table. Why I'm sharing this I'll fast forward to the end and share an awesome quote with you that pretty much sums up what I hope you'll get out of everything. I'm going to talk about here. Now, this quote comes from a guy who leads a podcast called Very Bad Wizards. There's two professors and you can listen to their episode. I will link it in my show notes all about Judith Harris and this parenting stuff. He says at the end of his episode, knowing this, I became a lot less worried about what I was doing But I'm sort of more at peace knowing that I don't have to hover around my daughter to ensure that her life will be happy. I don't have to feed her Mozart and good literature in order to ensure that she'll be smart. I kind of have a happier life with her, knowing that she's going to be as smart as she is, knowing that she's going to have the personality that she has, and it's not. I mean, it's a terrible existence to think that everything you do is so powerful in shaping their future. So the information that I'm going to share here today draws heavily from a New Yorker article in 1998 all about Judith Harris and it's written by Malcolm Gladwell. So let's jump into this. Judith Harris was a woman in a PhD program all about experimental psychology, and partway through her program, her health issues were so poor that she had to drop out. And to support herself, she took up textbook writing. What's interesting is if you Google or I look in Amazon, Judith Harris, you will find dozens of textbooks that are still used today in college courses, in you know adolescent development, so- psychology, sociology. So she understands her research, because writing textbooks like that, you have to be elbow deep in research. In doing all this research, Judith said, I told my husband Charlie about it. I had signed a contract to write a developmental psychology textbook, but I wasn't quite ready to write it because the more I thought about it, the more I realized I couldn't write it. I no longer could say what my publishers wanted me to say based on all this research that she had found. So Harris jumped into the research, I'm not going to get too technical here, wrote a draft and submitted an article to the Psychological Review, which is one of the most prestigious journals in psychology. And it's sort of laughable that a stay-at-home grandmother at the time, because she didn't have a PhD, she wasn't affiliated with the program, she submitted this article and it was accepted and published to wild acclaim and haters and lovers, and it made a big splash, and then she turned that into a book. Well, the central claim of Judith Harris's work is that how parents rear a child has no long-term effects on the child's personality, intelligence, or mental health. And her book begins, this book has two purposes. First, to dissuade you of the notion that a child's personality, or what used to be called their character, is shaped or modified by the child's parents. And second, to give you an alternate view of how the child's personality is shaped. Judith Harris's big claim at the time that peers matter more than parents ran counter to nearly everything that a century, hundred years of psychology and psychotherapy had told us. You remember Freud and Freudian theory that parents and, you know, parental love is at the root of everything. And a lot of therapy was based on that, laying back on the couch and talking about your parents and all the ways that they messed you up. And you guys have heard nature versus nurture. This is a big, people are always trying to figure out, well, is that nature? Is that what they come with? Is that how our kids are biologically wired? Or is it nurture that affects them? Is it their environment and the shaping and the parental, uh, you know, expectations and love and all that? Well, in recent years, the idea that parents were central to all of this has run into some problems. There are lots of careful studies, and one of them, for example, is the famous Minnesota study of twins that were separated at birth. And from studies like that, behavioral geneticists have concluded that about 50% of the personality differences among people, traits such as friendliness, introversion or extroversion, nervousness, openness, and so on, is attributable to our genes. Yet, when researchers try to find exactly where that other 50% comes from, They have not been able to find it. And if we think that it's all parents, if we think that it's half nature, you know, 50% are genes that determine who we are and 50% are parents. Well, you'd be able to see a consistent difference between types of parenting in the research and in the literature. Researchers have not been able to find a causal link between the specific social environment that parents create for their children in the home and the way those children turn out. There was a study called the Colorado Adoption Project, where they had 245 pregnant women who'd planned to place their children for adoption, and researchers followed those children into their adoptive homes, and at the same time, they chose 245 biological children to watch over the years. And Basically, they tested them on intellectual ability, aspects of personality, and time over time, the biological children proved to be fairly similar to their parents'. However, the adopted children had nothing whatsoever in common with the scores of their adoptive parents. What that means is these children were no more similar in personality or intellectual skills to the people who raised them, fed them, clothed them, read to them, taught them, and loved them all their lives. No more similar to those people as parents than to a stranger taken at random off the street. And if nurture is that important, if the parent's role is that important, then why don't these adopted kids have at least some greater than statistical chance similarities to their adoptive parents? Well, the Colorado study says that the only reason we are like our parents is that we share their genes. And that by any measures of cognition or personality, when there is no genetic inheritance, there is no resemblance. So basically, I take from this that our children come to us wired to be a certain way. Whether biological of our own genes or adopted from another, basically they show up with the personality they're going to have, the intellect they're going to have, and either way our role in at least 50% of who they will be as people is over, done, out of our control. They're already here. They're already wired that way. Let's look at the genes and the predispositions that those children come with. Sure enough, if you study nice, well-adjusted children, it turns out that they generally have well-adjusted and nice parents. It's quite possible that nice children are nice simply because they receive nice genes from their parents. Also, what if, all other things being equal, nice children tend to be hugged more because they're nice, and unpleasant children tend to be spanked because they are unpleasant? Children are born with individual temperaments. Some of them are easy to rear from the start, and others are much more difficult. Any of you that have several children know this. They are not the same. They come with those innate characteristics that can strongly influence how we as parents treat them. So what if your difficult child causes you to spank them when normally you wouldn't. I don't mean causes, of course you have a choice, but you know a more difficult child is more likely to get spanked. So then is it fair to say that your spanking made them a difficult or aggressive child? Or is it because they were a difficult or aggressive child that they are more likely to get spanked? Harris tells an interesting story about a woman, a mother, walking by her front yard while she's out there one day. And Harris had a dog that barked at the children. And one child went and hid behind the bushes, terrified of the dog. And the other child came right up to that dog and was going to pet it, till the mother said, no, stop, you'll get your fingers bit off. So in that instance, the very same mother had to parent her children in different ways. She was coaxing her timid child out of the bushes, being kind and gentle and trying to make him feel okay around the dog. And she was reining in and scolding her other brash child that was in danger. Same mother, different parenting styles shaped by the actions and the temperament of her child. This phenomenon, what Harris calls child-to-parent effects, has been explored in detail by psychological researchers. I'm not gonna go into all of it, but there is one giant study where they looked at the genetic influences on how children were in the family and how that influenced the parents parenting them. And they examined whether these children's personality traits were causing parental behavior. They found that parents' negativity is not causing negative adjustment of the kid. It's just reflecting it. This is a tremendous surprise to some people because we you know, we think that parenting causes these children to be a certain way. But often what looks like nurture, what looks like the parents' behaviors, is sometimes just a reaction to the nature, to the biology that's already there. Your kids come wired a certain way, and they affect you too. It's funny, in this Very Bad Wizards podcast that I talked about, they joke about being victims of their children. (laughs) And it's a funny way to look at it. I have one child that is tremendously more difficult to parent than my others. And it's a constant battle. So I really enjoy reading this and reminding myself that that child comes wired a certain way. And I'm supposed to react my best to it, of course, but it's understandable when it's harder with one child than another. Okay, Harris expands her ideas by talking about something called the Cinderella effect. And this is a legitimate thing found in research. Let's think about the story of Cinderella. Noble, I don't know, maybe not noble, but a rich girl by birth, had a loving father, a beautiful mother who died in childbirth or at an early age. So Cinderella had excellent genes and breeding. However, then she spent years in degradation, sleeping by the coals, dressed in rags, you know, treated poorly, really abused emotionally by today's standards. And yet somehow she was able to charm and hold the attention of a sophisticated guy like the prince. If we believed 100% in the parenting style being the dramatic effect on our children, the story would make no sense. But all of us understand that, number one, what's inside of a human, their genes, their breeding, comes through. Breeding like we're horses. Sorry, guys, I can't think of a better way to, you know, say (laughs) what we're born with. But number two point made in the Cinderella effect is interesting, and that is all of us understand that it is possible to be one person to our parents and another person to our friends. Cinderella learned to act one way at home to avoid abuse by her stepmother, but outside of her home she could act very different. She could come alive and be a different person. Away from our parents, all of us, can reconstruct ourselves. This is a lesson that children learn very quickly. It's an important limitation on the power of parents because even when we do succeed as parents in influencing our children, there is no guarantee that those behaviors we've influenced are required or required a compliance. There's no guarantee that those things will travel outside the home. Our kids can choose who they want to be and who they're going to be. The Cinderella effect shows up all the time in psychological research. Well, and let's talk one quick second about the limitations of research. They make an example in this Malcolm Gladwell article that in a 1997 issue of the Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine, there was a big study that people quote all the time that basically found that when parents use corporal punishment, you know, spanking, slapping the wrist, when their goal is to control behavior, it actually makes the kids worse. So this, of course, you know, was splashed across the news. Don't spank your children. You make them more aggressive. Don't worry, guys, I'm not pro-spanking. I'm just using this here as an example. So that got splashed across the news. But guess what? In the very same issue of that pediatric and adolescent medicine journal issue, there was another study that said for most children, claims that spanking teaches aggression seem unfounded. So here's research in the very same issue that said exactly the opposite. And what was the difference? Did did one article lie and the other did not? No, the difference was that the article that got splashed all over the news was simply talking about children's behavior at home. And guess what? If a parent spanks a child at home, yeah, that child's probably going to be more unhappy with that parent. It was really looking at mothering. So the mothers said, yes, my child's behavior increasingly gets worse and I have to spank more and harder to get the same effect. So yes, it increased the poor behaviors, but when you evaluate a child's behavior outside of the home, just the fact that a child is not getting along with his mother at home or not behaving for her does not necessarily mean that he won't get along with his peers or do well in a different environment. So there's my limitation for research. You can't believe everything you read at surface level and Then the bigger point here is that our children can be different people at home than they are out in the community. Now, patterns do happen at home. There are things like birth order, if we have a conflicted parent-child dynamic, there's sibling rivalries, there's opposition to parents or authority that happens, and our behavior as parents does make a difference and shape what happens inside of our home. Absolutely. But I don't even think that Judith Harris is claiming that parents don't shape inside the home. Her bigger point is that these things don't necessarily cross over into the life that a child will lead outside of your home, which is the place where adults are going to spend the majority of their lives. Think about this. Some of those of us who are parents or think a lot about parenting, we get so wrapped up in what happens in about 25% of the lifespan. And that's a lot of pressure to feel like we as parents in 25% of our children's lifespan are going to make or break them. Think about it. They spend 10 to 12 years almost exclusively in your care, other than school. But I'm even talking like social things, going out with friends. Most 10 to 12-year-olds spend a lot of time at home, and they're exclusively with you, and you do shape them a lot. But then the next eight years at home, they're increasingly away from you. They're out with friends, or they're at lessons, or under the direction of coaches, or you know, drama teachers, etc. And then after that, the rest of their life, the next 75% of their life is completely out of your home, and out of your influence. That puts a lot of pressure on us as parents if we assume that what we do in those first 10 to 12 years or even those first 18 years is going to determine the rest of their life's intellect, personality, and mental health. Let's remove that pressure. I'm embracing this research because this makes so much more sense to me. Now, let's talk about the influence of peers. From a young age, the influence of friend groups and the group around us matters. I had to smile at this cute story. There is a professor of sociology at Indiana University named William A. Corsaro, and he spent his life's work alongside preschoolers, it seems. He really is a guru of children. And once he spent close to a year in a preschool where the children were forbidden to bring toys from home into the classroom. But before long, he noticed they'd found a way around the rule. These are three and four-year-old children who'd started to bring in their tiniest toys, like a matchbox toy car in his pocket, or a little plastic animal, and they'd keep them hidden in their pockets and skirts. And these were only preschoolers, but already they were organizing against the adult world and defining themselves in a group, sort of in opposition to their elders and to the rules. Now, what he found most interesting is not that they just defied the rules and kept it to their but they brought those toys to play with Together. They pulled them out at recess. They showed them to each other and played collectively. They wanted the others in their group to know that they had them. And there's a real strong emotional satisfaction, even in children this young, in doing things with your peer group. That is an effect that we should not ignore. A sociologist at York University named Anne-Marie Lambert asked her students to write short autobiographies that described some big events in their lives and the things that made them most unhappy. And she found that 9% of the unhappy things came from parents, were identified as something their parents had done. But more than a third of those incidents pointed to the way they had been treated by peers. And this is Harris's argument in a nutshell, that whatever our parents do to us is overshadowed in the long run by what our peers do to us. And Harris pulls together an extraordinary range of studies, research that supports this idea. Let me just talk about one of them, looking at juvenile delinquency. There is some giant study with 500 elementary school and middle school boys in Pittsburgh. And the study found that African-American boys, many of them from poor single-parent or high-risk families, committed far more delinquent acts than the white kids. That much was not surprising. But when the research divided up the black boys by neighborhood the effect of coming from a quote-unquote high-risk family disappeared. Black kids who did not live in the poorest underclass neighborhoods, even if they were from poor single-parent families, were no more delinquent than their white, mostly middle-class peers. A similar study looked at neighborhoods but compared one parent to two-parent households. And we often hear that single-mother households are at-risk families, but it found that parental presence did not matter, it did not affect the delinquency of these kids, the differences still showed up along neighborhood lines. Therefore, the study concludes that a child is better off living in a troubled family in a good neighborhood than living in a good family in a troubled neighborhood. Peers trump parents. Now, Judith Harris's story, as I'm reporting it today, finishes off with her own parenting story. She had two daughters. The first was Nomi, the elder. She was quiet and self-sufficient. She was a national merit scholar who went on to do graduate work. And Harris says she gave us no trouble while she was growing up. She did not require much guidance. Then Judy and her husband adopted a second child, a daughter named Elaine. And Elaine always wanted to be with people. And Harris says, we started getting bad reports from the school right away that she wouldn't sit on her chair, that she was bothering other kids. And as the girls got older, Nomi became a brain and Elaine became a dropout. Nomi was a member of a very small clique of intellectual kids and Elaine was a member of the delinquent subgroup. They went in opposite directions. Harris says that she began motherhood as a classic environmentalist. She really believed that children would reflect the environment that they were raised in. And had she stopped with her first child, Nomi, she says that she might have attributed Nomi's studiousness and self-sufficiency and success to enlightened parenting. How many of us feel that way when our kids are successful, right? But it was Elaine who, threw all that for loop, Harris says, I assumed that an adopted child would represent her environment and that if I could give Elaine the same kind of environment that I gave to my first child, she would turn out, well, not the same, but similar. I certainly did not expect that she would be so vastly different. I couldn't see that I was having any effect on her at all. Now, fast forward a few years, and interestingly, Elaine turned out well. That troubled teenager turned out fine. Harris reports that she was married. She had a nurse license, a child, you know, probably has a family by now. Harris's bigger point is that it should be said that the idea that parents can control the destiny of their children by doing all the right things, by providing children with every lesson and experience, by buying them the right toys and saying the right words and never spanking or scolding them, is a self-serving idea. Harris at least calls for neighborhoods and peers and the children themselves to share part of the credit or part of the blame for how children turn out. Harris is rejecting this nurture assumption that we'd been based on for so long that places the blame and the credit squarely on the parent that's made it possible to demonize all those people who fail to measure up to the strictest standards of supposedly perfect parenting— And then I really love this part that Harris says as I'm wrapping up. She said, I want to tell people that it's all right. A lot of people who should be contributing children to our society, who could be contributing very useful and fine children, are reluctant to do it or are waiting very long to have children because they feel that it requires such a huge commitment. If they knew that it was okay to have a child and let it be reared by a nanny, or put in a daycare center or even to send it to a boarding school, maybe they'd believe that it would be okay to have a kid. You can have a kid without having to devote your entire life, your entire emotional expenditure to this child for the next 20 years. Now, it might seem paradoxical that I, Elena, who am fascinated by parenting and always sharing advice about how to be your best and do your best— It might seem paradoxical that I'm fascinated by this idea of letting ourselves off the hook. But I think parenting is a fine balance. You give your best and absolutely you have an effect on your kids when they're with you. And during those early years, that attachment, that setting up their trust in the world, helping them feel safe and protected is huge. You provide that solid foundation to your kid, teach them some consequences, etc., But I'm firmly embracing the idea that we don't have to agonize over every parenting decision. We don't have to obsess over how we eat in pregnancy or introducing classical music or baby Einstein videos. To sleep train or not to sleep train doesn't actually matter that much. Putting children in a daycare with good care. Are we feeding them enough fruits and vegetables? Are we teaching a second language while their brains are plastic and malleable? All those pressures don't appear to drastically affect who your kids are going to be as adults. Paul Bloom, who's a professor of psychology and cognitive science at Yale University, was quoted in the Very Bad Wizards podcast episode I'm talking about. And he says, all of us have been in long-term relationships with people. And you want to make that person happy. You want to share in their goals. But you don't typically believe that you're going to shape their personality. You know, he's talking about romance here, marriages. You want to make their life better. It's foolish and counterproductive, however, to think that you're going to change their real nature. Maybe we should think about raising kids that way. It's a long relationship. You want to help and support the other person, establish a good relationship, but you're not going to transform them, end quote. So this is me today letting you know that you can relax a little, love, teach, you know, be there for your kids, but picture them as the future adults that you are raising. Judith Harris's claims fit nicely alongside my view that these kids don't really belong to us. We are not the end-all, be-all of their teaching and training. They have their own agency, and we should do our best but not obsess or stress over the outcome. Good luck to all my fellow parents, past parents, and future parents out there. Now, before I go, I've been hard at work gathering what I think, after my years of experience and research, to be the ideal parenting recipe. And I'm creating a fun video course. I'm really excited about it. I'm hoping to release it this fall. So join my interest list at bit.ly slash big picture parenting to hear about it and maybe even to be a beta tester. I'm going to need some people to go through it for very low cost to help give me feedback and help out here. I promise it's going to be fun. So that link is bit.ly slash big picture parenting. And I encourage you to share big picture relationships, share this podcast, pass it along to anybody that could use some peace and perspective. Thanks for joining me, and I'll talk to you next time. Visit www.elainajo.co for show notes and random photos, along with any handouts mentioned in this episode. Find ElenaJo.co on Instagram for daily big picture reminders, and join the big picture email list for an occasional pick-me-up in your inbox from Elena Joe.